This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. The rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows. Welcome aboard. Yes, here we are. 550 Queen Street East, downtown Toronto. And if you've been living in a cave for the last uh, several days, we were, of course, uh, the host for the G20 Summit. The G8 Summit was held north of here, up in Cottage Country in uh, Huntsville. Uh, But the G20, of course, has come and gone. Uh, Along with it, a $1.3 billion hangover that uh, the taxpayers will be... uh, left to pay the bill, and uh, I was uh, actually uh, downtown uh, Saturday and uh, uh, part of today with a camera crew, several camera crews were uh, uh, producing a, uh, not only a documentary, uh, but we're also uh, continuing to shoot uh, footage for the upcoming uh, television project, uh, also named The Conspiracy Show. We're getting close. I know these things take a long time, but we're uh, uh, we're uh, zeroing in, uh, finding a broadcaster, and we hope to get up uh, in full swing very shortly. But anyway, so we're downtown, uh, Queens Park, etc., uh, shooting uh, protesters, videotaping. I should say, <laughs> you know, that's something you never want to say, sort of in a loud voice when you're near riot police. Hey, let's see if we can shoot these guys. No, uh, you want to put that in the playbook. Videotape. Videotape, uh, and luckily we had we had three crews, and uh, we had a rover crew. We had a crew down at the uh, International Media Center, and uh, uh, I was part of the uh, w- w- what we called the Vox Populi crew. We were just gathering streeters. I was interviewing some of the more peaceful protesters, and of course, every conceivable uh, grievance was represented during the G20. They had the Falun Gong uh, um, uh, folks from China. You had the Tibetan contingency demanding that China get out of Tibet. You had uh, a Vietnamese contingents 
contingency group uh, or a Vietnamese uh, a group uh, demanding that the communists get out of Vietnam. Uh, they were, of course, uh, native uh, groups, Greenpeace. Every every group was there. Anyway, uh, the producer of uh, the Rover Group was right down on Young Street when the anarchists were smashing windows and uh, setting fires to car cars. And uh, even though he had his media badge, and uh, Peter is. Uh, He's got to be 55, 56, doesn't move too well. <laughs> Poor guy, though. He got a little too close, and uh, he got a baton right in the midsection and then uh, was jostled around and manhandled by a few uh, riot police. But uh, uh, other than that, uh, thankfully, um, was not uh, seriously injured. All right, but what do we do with the $1.3 billion uh, uh, tax bill? I tell you, I, I was talking to uh, to George, host of... Uh, Big Band Sunday night, and we wish him a happy voyage up to uh, uh, Simcoe County. Anyway, uh, I said, why can't they just do these conferences, uh, these summits on video conferencing? We have the technology. Why do they need to come here and cause such turmoil and upset? Uh, but I tell you, I, I, I got my media accreditation, and uh, I, I was down at the media center uh, sampling as much of the free uh, uh, free stuff as I could. I figured I'm going to get my $1.3 billion back somehow. So I, I sampled some of the fine uh, wine that was there uh, from uh, the Niagara region and uh, lots of egg salad sandwiches. I wasn't even hungry. I just said, I'm going to get my money's worth. <laughs> anyway, uh, the G20 has come and gone. Uh, thank God. Uh, we're going to talk with... Phil Hogue here in just a moment, the author of No Such Thing as Doomsday. Frank has 25 years' experience in emergency services. Maybe we could have used him down here this weekend. Uh, he's a survivalist, and uh, 25 years in, in emergency services, he's going to discuss how to prepare for and survive severe long-term catastrophic events such as nuclear attacks, chemical and biological warfare, weather modification, earth changes. And uh, I mentioned Earth changes. I uh, driving down the uh, the 404, the DVP from uh, up in Unionville to get to the radio station, and just caught in the midst of a complete torrent. I mean, the the rain was coming down in sheets. It was biblical. It was biblical. And as I passed the Don River, uh, they actually had to close a lane uh, just because of the standing water there was uh, incredible. And I had to slam on the brakes uh, before I hit that water, and. Uh, I tell you, I thought, my gosh, the end is nigh. It was coming down. Uh, I thought it's time to start building that ark. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I remember a conversation I had with um, uh, the author of a book called Not by Fire But by Ice. And uh, he's, he's predicting that we're, we're long overdue for, a, for a, uh, an ice age. And... Uh, you know, in order for an ice age to come, it doesn't have to get that much colder. We just need greater amounts of precipitation, and we're starting to see that. I'm starting to think that we might, in fact, be uh, in the midst of an ice age. So all the more reason to have Phil Hogue on the program, as I say, the author of No Such Thing as Doomsday. He's, uh, he's going to talk about uh, uh, radiation shielding, uh, developing and building power systems, cooking fuel options, uh, how to store food, uh, water filtration, communication, medical considerations, and much more. And, you know, it doesn't have to be even a long-term emergency that we're talking about. 
You see these ads running now. Even the government of Canada uh, has run ads. You know, prepare. Always be prepared for 72 hours. And I, I always wonder, what are they trying to tell us? Is something coming down the pipe they, they're sort of hinting at, but they don't want to tell us the full story? Anyway, always a good idea uh, to have uh, food and, and water uh, in, on, on, uh, on store. That being said, let's get right to our uh, discussion on surviving a long-term emergency. And uh, a great pleasure to have Philip Hogue on the program. Hello, Philip. Hello, how are you doing tonight? I'm very well, thank you. Do I say A? <laughs> uh, not necessary. Well, you've got it out of the way. We can dispense with that. We've got the A's uh, taken care of, Philip. Listen, I understand you're running for sheriff. Yes, I am. Montana. I'm running for sheriff in Park County, Montana. Um, we'll see how it all shakes out. It's <laughs> the sheriff is uh, kind of a important position, especially in this day and age when uh, at least what we're experiencing down here in the U.S., which is probably similar to what you're experiencing up there in Canada, is where you're getting more and more of a trend towards centralization, uh, kind of like the old Soviet Union model that they're going to control everything from Ottawa or Washington. And um, there's a lot of people that believe that the best form of government is local government. And a lot of the things that have been implemented here and in Canada also are in law or implemented under the color of law, not under law itself or the supreme law of the land. So there's kind of a trend for people trying to take back control of government on a local level. And uh, the sheriff's position is an important position to help facilitate that. Uh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more, uh, uh, Philip. I mean, we, we, were, we were talking about the G20 up here, and there is definitely a... Uh, uh, a move towards entrenching, uh, you know, greater integration uh, on on the world stage, certainly with the economy, and we're starting to see it now with uh, security groups and intelligence groups and even policing. And uh, I, I don't. The next see... thing is currency. Yes, yes, we uh, we we we're certainly, I think, uh, uh, looking at a, a common North American uh, a, a currency. I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, say, within the next 10 years. It might take longer than that. It's, it's incredibly complex, but I think it's, an, it's almost inevitable, unfortunately. Uh, I, I, call, I don't call globalization or, you know, this move towards sort of one-world government, I, I don't look at it as a, a conspiracy necessarily. It's almost like a synthetic beast. It's a process. It's, it's, it's almost imperceptible, but, and it's gradual, uh, but it's, it, it just seems to have a, take on a life of its own. And I, I do find the trend very worrisome. Uh, that being said, 25 years in the emergency services, and um, you're uh, also, I understand, constructing a, uh, a, a fairly large, something like 7,000 square feet, an underground shelter. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, about that? Well, let me, let me give you a little historical timeline. I actually organized and engineered helped design uh, a large project about 20 years ago. Um, and it's, it's all operational. We still have it here. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not building it right now. Uh, and my 
area, like for instance, there's a book that I published, and I sold about 16,500 copies. The book was well received, uh, presently out of out of print, uh, and that's the book called No Such Thing as Doomsday. Uh, you can still find them used on Amazon.com and places, and they're getting a pretty penny for them right now. But the whole concept is when I say no such thing as doomsday, uh, the concept that I'm conveying there is doomsday is something for people that are not prepared. <laughs> and I'm a person that's very proactive, and I believe that life, I have a, a spiritual belief, that I've experienced through my 59 years of life, that life, God, whatever you want to call it, always brings us everything we need to do what we need to do if we're always doing our best and being conscientious. Now, unfortunately, there's large, vast sections of the population that watch too much TV and uh, consequently are brainwashed uh, into a popular uh, media mentality, which is illusion-based. Um, so there are a few people around, and I'm sure you're aware that, aware that uh, uh, the masses are under heavy illusion, and the reality of what's going on is considerably different than what's portrayed on the nightly news. Um, and the nightly news tries to depict, depict people like you and me as crazy wackos. Um, so anyhow, uh, my message is one of being prepared. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a balanced operation because you kind of have two extremes of mentality or consciousness. You've got one extreme that... Uh, is so fearful of reality that they they cannot face it. They they can't look at it because it's just too threatening. The possibility that you know that things are not going to continue the way they have been forever, that our c currency could collapse or that our infrastructures could collapse, is just too frightening and threatening to look at and to deal with. All right, and then you've got another extreme of people who see what's going on, but they get so much into it that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it's what you call imperil. And, you know, there's got to be a little balance in between the two. You need to be aware, and you need to do the obvious preparations, but you, you can't be so dwelling on worst-case scenarios that you make them a self-fulfilling reality. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you get into this mindset, well, I've got all this food prepared and stored and water, and I've got my, um, my ammo and my underground shelter. Bring it on! Bring it on! No, but as you say, you got to be prudent, and there has to be a balanced approach. Philip Hogue, survivalist, 25 years' experience in emergency services, He's here to discuss how to prepare for and survive severe long-term catastrophic events. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. My name is Richard Serrett. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 
at 1-866-740-4740. Philip Hogue is with us. No such thing as a doomsday. Now, uh, Philip, you mentioned uh, sort of the uh, the illusion that many of us operate under, and, and one of them, I think, is, uh, you know, we... We don't really have civil defense anymore uh, in, uh, in in North America, and uh, there's almost this this resignation that if nuclear war happens, well, it's not survivable. But that's not true. Uh, I mean, even a, a a fairly severe nuclear conflagration is is uh, very survivable as long as you're you know you're, you're downwind from the the fallout and so forth. Um, but I think the greater threat when it comes to uh, 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 nuclear a nuclear device would be the detonation of a, 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 a nuclear war up in the atmosphere. Let's say uh, somewhere above uh, North America. That that uh, I don't know. A place North Korea could potentially launch. They wouldn't have to have a, a, you know a missile hit the United States proper, but just detonating it above the uh, the surface, you could knock out uh, power grids. Uh, for a very long time, and, uh, you know, we'd all be in, in the dark and the cold. Right, and, and you're referring to electromagnetic pulse, and it's kind of like the concept is is uh, if you uh, have an opponent standing in front of you and you're thinking about a fight, the best thing you could do is throw sand in his eyes. He loses his balance, he can't see where you're coming from, and then you can just pummel him at will. And see, uh, what theorized is uh, Russia, China, and probably the U.S. have nuclear devices already pre-positioned in satellites uh, high up in the atmosphere, 100, 200 miles up. And when you detonate a nuclear device at that altitude, there's no nothing to impede uh, the, uh, the pulse which occurs. And uh, one or two devices detonated over the North American continent would blanket the entire continent with a pulse that would attenuate it. Uh, it's quicker than lightning, and it would attenuate on wires. It would attenuate on the uh, wires in the utility grid. It would attenuate on the extension, the, uh, the cord off your computer, even if your computer was not plugged in, that cord off your computer is an antenna. It can collect. And it's so fast, it, it can actually jump across open circuits. Even though you have the power turned off to your computer, it could jump across that circuit. Um, so what it does is it burns and it fries all integrated electronics. Uh, you know, uh, it would destroy all the computers, all the unprotected radios radios that with antennas on them uh, that are connected, uh, it would paralyze um, technology and life as we know it. When you think about how dependent everything is on electronics, uh, it would just fry, you know, re- resistors. Uh, it just wastes stuff. Now, the U.S. military, and I'm sure the Canadian military has insulated most of its command and control against electromagnetic pulse. And in the shelter I built, we, we isolated our radio room and our engine room in steel containers, actually steel tanks, and protected all the wires going in and out of the tanks 
with what was called MOVs. It's a it's like a lightning arrestor, but it's quicker, and it senses the pulse, and it diverts it to a grounding system. If you don't have a good grounding system, it will still jump across the circuit because EMP kind of follows the path of least resistance. Um, and so serious problem, serious problem. And, you know, I think the more serious problem... I mean, I could talk about nuclear war. I'm, I'm really well-versed on nuclear war. I've actually done consulting for a foreign government on civil defense structure construction. Um, you know, I won't say who. Um, they, I had a, a guy from another country uh, sending me emails over a couple of years and, and talking about civil defense, and I was kind of encouraging him. And then all of a sudden, I got a call from a guy from Israel, and he says, uh, "I want to fly over to this such and such country, and they want to build shelters." <laughs> so I go over there, and and uh, I put on a uh, presentation for all of their kind of PhD type guys on shelter construction because they wanted to build some command and control shelters and, and uh, some hardened uh, communication relay facilities. And so I don't know what they did, but, you know, I just talked concepts with them. I saw what they were thinking of doing, which wasn't, wasn't very good. But I was correct in, 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 in stating that the, the idea that, nu- you know, a serious nuclear conflagration is not survivable, that's a, that's a myth, correct? That's a myth, you know, and that's, uh, you know, that's part of uh, the myth that came from the, the unilateral disarmament people. You know, uh, let me explain to you what happens in a nuclear attack. Um, Typically, the first thing that will happen, as you you mentioned, will be an EMP event, uh, because it's a blinding mechanism. Um, The other thing is they'll take out surveillance satellites. Uh, and typically, the opposing party will probably get on the hotline and say, "Oh, we apologize. We had an accident in space. There's been an explosion on the such and such. Uh, uh, just bear with us. Be patient. Have faith." You know. <laughs> so in the meantime, if they take out our uh, our satellites that monitor that pick up the infrared signature of launches. Uh, then we're even more delayed. And then under the Clinton administration, they, they adopted the policy that we would absorb a first strike, which was total insanity, total insanity. Um, because the whole idea is when you see that signature of a launch, they know which silos were just emptied, and they can immediately launch and take out the silos that haven't launched. Um, anyhow, you know, we could talk for hours on nuclear war strategy. The other thing they did is they took away from the U.S. subcommanders the authority for independent launch. The whole idea, the sub, submarines were a great deterrent to a nuclear war because even though a first strike might take out our airfields uh, and, you know, our launch facilities, they couldn't necessarily get all the subs. And those subs, their, their instructions were just to sit on the bottom for a month or so and then, and then rise to the surface and launch at predetermined targets. So, 
it was, you know, nobody's going to want to go to war with you unless they can take out those subs, because even though they knock out your land-based silos, you know, a month later these guys are going to give them payback. So, but these guys took away the independent launch authority from the submarine commanders, and they're totally dependent on the command and control capabilities of the military, which that's a primary target. Your retaliatory capabilities, your command and control, and then your military industrial support complex. So, anyhow, not not that I'm an advocate for war or for the military industrial complex, but just to give you a little understanding of the nasty mechanisms of thermonuclear war. Fair enough, yeah. It is survivable. It is totally survivable. You know, one of the lies is nuclear winter. If we have all these missiles launched, it will fill the atmosphere with dust and we will go into nuclear winter for 10 years. It's all BS. That's a nice way to say it. Uh, That was just the nuclear disarmament, the unilateral disarmament people. They calculated every damn weapon on the planet being launched at once and being a ground burst. Now, this is very significant because the only time you do a ground burst is when you're taking out a silo, when you're taking out a buried command control structure, or when you're trying to devastate a runway. All right? That's the only time you do a ground burst. The rest of the time, you do an air burst. Now, it's the ground burst which creates the mushroom cloud and puts all the dust in the atmosphere. But if you detonate a weapon 100 or 200 feet in the air, typically uh, there is no radioactive fallout. There's an initial pulse of neutron radiation, which is very penetrating and destructive to biological tissue, all right? But the advantage to doing an airburst is it it puts out a a wider periphery of the destructive effects of overpressure. In other words, you get more bang for your buck having an airburst. You can destroy a larger area, circumference, than if you do a ground burst because a lot of the energy is taken up digging a crater and incinerating right, right. the stuff in, in close proximity. So it's fallacious to say that there would be nuclear winter. It's a lie. But don't get me wrong. I'm not an advocate for nuclear war. I, I think war in itself is insane. And, and it's a product of corporate government and international banking. And, and we, we, need to, anyhow, we need to get rid of the international bankers. Well, listen, when we come back, let's... Uh, let's uh, uh, get into the uh, the nuts and bolts of uh, of survival. Is it best to be uh, to, to you know to stay put in the city, or do you uh, do you make a beeline for your uh, your chalet out in the country? Uh, we'll get into that. We'll talk about the proper uh, uh, types of food to store and uh, water filtration systems, and uh, maybe even how to salvage. What sort of things should we be uh, uh, salvaging in order to? Uh, I don't know, to build batteries and, uh, and the like. We'll, we'll get into all of these things with survivalist Philip Hogue here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
you want the truth, you can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Philip Hogue is with us. No such thing as doomsday. So, Philip, let's uh, let's say, for example, uh, there is a... um, some sort of an electronic uh, or electromagnetic uh, a pulse uh, a weapon. Uh, a power grids across North America are knocked out. We are sitting in the dark. Uh, now, in order to prepare for that eventuality, should I plan on when that happens, staying put? Because we're not, you know, we don't know when it's going to happen. Uh, do, do we do we plan on staying put where we are, whether we're living in the city, or do we, uh, when that happens, do we have an escape plan to get to, uh, let's say, our our second, uh, our uh, you know, our getaway destination? Well, I think uh, planning is really key. Preparedness and planning is key. Uh, obviously, the place of greatest vulnerability is going to be in the metropolitan areas. Uh, so if you've got a rural location that has water, uh, some sort of food, the capability for fishing or hunting, uh, potential capability for a garden, uh, and, you know, that has neighbors that are somewhat like-minded, uh, that would be an ideal situation. One of the big problems we have is the fact that we have developed into a society which is dependent and addicted to some very vulnerable centralized infrastructures. I mean, you can, you can start out, the biggest and the worst of them is your grocery store. Now, they've only got about two or three days' worth of food there at the grocery store, and all of us are dependent on those trucks which haul the food from California or here or there, long distances. It's not like back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s where we lived in nations where our food was generally locally produced. You know, it's, it's just central uh, infrastructures and dependent on transportation. So if you pull one little part out of the infrastructure, if you knock down the electrical grid, if you make fuel not available, if the currency, the means of exchange, collapses, the whole system tends to crumble and fall apart. And it's it's just not that rock solid. I mean, the guy watches, everybody sits down and watches TV, and, you know, this we got such a great society and everything's so beautiful. Uh, you know, uh, the government can fix everything. They got lots of money. Well, it just is not necessarily so. Um, so it's good to start thinking, okay, what am I going to do if I can't go down to the grocery store and buy food? You know, uh, start thinking about 
you know, maybe I should, when there's plenty of food out there right now, I should go in and figure out what I usually buy every week. This is just a really baseline thing. Okay, just figure what you buy every week. And every week, take one of those items, say if it's tomato soup. If, if you're really into Campbell's tomato soup, I don't eat it anyhow because it's got MSG in it. But if that's your thing or it's, it's beef stew or something, don't buy one can of it. Buy a dozen cans and put it in your pantry. Then next week, if it's applesauce, usually buy one jar of applesauce. Buy a dozen. Put them in the pantry every week. Get a dozen of one item. Start building yourself a little cushion. You know, you get this propaganda saying, well, people that prepare and store food are hoarders. They're, they're a vicious element in society. That's not true. That is absolutely a lie. People who prepare, who buy food ahead of time when there's an abundance, actually help the entire situation when a shortage occurs because they're not competing for limited resources when there is a shortage. That's very true. That's an excellent point. So it's important when things are available, start thinking here, folks, you know, uh, the most important thing is water. And another, your vulnerability in a metropolitan area, you're in a centralized water uh, system. Now, up in Canada, you've got lots of water, so all you need is a means of, of treating your water, uh, whether it's filtering your water, the good old Boy Scout method, method of boiling the water. Uh, You've you, you just got to start thinking about these things and make sure you've got something to fall back on. Um, uh, water's first, uh, food is second. The next thing you're going to have to think about is, is transportation. Um, and uh, shelter is another issue. Um, of course, it gets a little trickier in Canada on the self-defense issue because uh, you guys have been pretty much... We've been pretty uh, much, uh, yeah, uh, denuded of our uh, our uh, capacity to defend ourselves. We're told to call 911 and cower under the bed. Uh, but let, let's talk about the storage of food again for a moment. Uh, I mean, do you recommend, where do you recommend you store that? Should you at some point, let's say, you, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're beyond storing a couple of dozen cans. You're, you're, you're looking for the long haul here now, six months, a year, two years worth of food. Do you rent a uh, uh, a storage uh, unit? What do you do? Where do you store it? Well, you know, I used to be. I used to have actually a canning factory. I still got the equipment, <laughs> and we used to can like two semis loads loads of dehydrated food a week. You know, back during Y two K, the uh, the gold rush of preparedness, which crashed and burned. <laughs> after the year 2000, uh, but dehydrated food is great, and it's a good idea. But those cans and those five-gallon buckets eventually uh, empty themselves. Uh, anyhow, I, I will answer your question, but I, I wanted to insert something else. Uh, just be aware that the ultimate survivalist, the ultimate preparedness person is the Amish. <laughs> and if I could recommend anything, and as, as extreme as it sounds, to any of you, is you might want to think about becoming Amish. 
Yeah, we certainly have a lot to learn uh, for, for them in terms of their self-reliance. There's no question correct, about that. Correct, correct. I'm not saying you have to learn to speak German or take their religious beliefs, but there's a group of people that aren't going to be hurt by the craziness of society's instability. Well, they're not dependent on the technology, so they're not going to be affected when it, uh, when it goes south. Right, and I've got no real serious problems with technology or electricity, uh, but... You know, the fact that they can, the average person in the North American continent doesn't have a clue on how to feed themselves. No, it's true. You know, when true. I grew up and I was a kid, we had a garden every year. And my parents and their parents went through the Depression. You know, and the Depression wasn't so bad back then because everything was, was fairly decentralized. But if, if we got hit with that same scenario now, the, the, the public are like sheep that are totally dependent on these infrastructures. So, so anyhow, we're getting back to food. Now, the best place to store dehydrated food, and, and I know this from years of experience, is it, you need to keep it in a place where you keep it relatively cool. When you, when you throw it in a storage locker and the thing isn't insulated and it gets 95 degrees in the summer and then it freezes in the winter, the, the shelf life on that stuff radically um, gets shortened, where I've got food where I kept it at about 50 degrees, you know, in an underground storage facility, and I had things like brown rice, which usually only lasts a couple of years, last seven years. Uh, brown rice doesn't last too well because it's got oil in the kernel, and it tends to go rancid. Uh, but... Uh, long-term food storage is a whole subject in itself about what type of food store well. There's, there's a lot of companies out there that you can go on the Internet and click on, and you can order packages. You can, you know, you can get dehydrated. You get freeze-dried. You can get fruits, vegetables, grains. It's a good idea. You, know, you can get one-year packages. It's a good idea to, to have something to fall back on. The advantage of the freeze-dried and the dehydrated project products is they're a lot lighter um, in terms of if you got to carry them. It's not like trying to carry canned goods. When I mentioned, you know, going to the store and getting 12 jars of applesauce or a, a dozen cans of tomato soup, I'm just starting at a real base level for the guy who really couldn't even conceive of the idea of maybe going out and buying a one-year dehydrated food program. I'm just saying. If that's too big of a jump for you, just buy some more peanut butter every time you go to the store. So at least you got something there. Right, right. Uh, we'll take a time out when we come back. Let's talk a little bit about growing your own food. Because if, it, if we're talking about, uh, let's say, an electromagnetic pulse-type attack, and the power grid is knocked out, it's going to be out for a very long time. And uh, let's say you've got you know, a year's supply of food. What happens after that runs out? We're going to have to learn how to grow our own. How much land do you need, let's say, to support a family of four? What, what are the best seeds to plant? Are we talking about heirloom-type uh, tomatoes? We'll get into all of that with Philip Hoke, how to prepare and survive a long-term emergency. We'll open up the phone lines as well and take questions and comments. Here on The Conspiracy Show, Richard Serrett. Slips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now 
at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Philip Hogue is with us, surviving a long-term emergency or disaster. Uh, so, Philip, if I want to grow a garden uh, and... Um, uh, let's say support a family of four. How much uh, acreage would I need to do that? And, and and let's go down sort of the laundry list of uh, the must-have sort of seeds uh, that, that you'd recommend. Well, you know, uh, I don't profess to be the world's expert. I mean, I've got a, a big garden out here. I would think, uh, you know, if you had a half-acre garden, you'd, you'd be in pretty darn good shape, but it's it's not quite that easy. Uh, you know, you know, to answer your question on seeds, I'd go with heirloom seeds uh, because you can collect, you can save seed from it, and it will reproduce. Uh, you know, you just don't want hybrid. Um, but, you know, you have to realize that it's not. We've got this mentality in modern society that everything's easy and presto, you know. Well, it, it doesn't quite work that way when you get into agriculture. It's something that you learn over the years. You know, like if you've never gardened before, the, cons- the idea that, well, for the first time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow a garden and I'm going to feed my family off that garden the first year is, is kind of illusion. You know, you, you have to learn gardening. And you got there's certain mistakes and trial and error, and and you can't just put it out there at the ground. At least in, where I live, you got to have a big fence around it because the deer are going to get in there and eat it all. Uh, and so, and then there's the issue if you live like where I am, you've got to have a way of irrigating the garden. Now, up, you've got lots of moisture up there; it's probably not a problem. And then you have to understand the varieties and your limitations and current terms of the, your growing season and the frost and what items you need to start inside ahead of time because they need a longer growing season and transplant them outside. So, you know, people really, it, it's, it's a big shift. It's a big shift. And, and if you're really serious, it, it's not something that gardening is not something like opening a can and adding water to some instant product. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's something you have to learn and a skill you... And it's the same thing with animal, animal husbandry. Like where I live here, I have... Uh, we have, let's see, what do we... have got six goats. I've got a heifer cow that I'm raising. Uh, to, I'll breed her this fall for milk so I can uh, make butter. Uh, you know, and my neighbor's got chickens. Uh, we got a big garden, and we've got a lot of game here. So I, you know, I usually put deer and elk in the freezer every year. So, you know, you might want to start thinking if you have the resources and capability, and you can relocate to a more rural location out of the cities. That's just a really logically good and smart thing to do, because. You get stuck in a city, and you're dependent on the local grocery store. You know, you are dependent, period. And whatever the government tells you to do, you're going to have to do. You, you're just as good as locked in a prison. You know, your options are very limited. Uh, 
And so, yes, get yourself heirloom seeds. Start studying. Start learning. Um, one of the important things is is start networking. You're, you're in a real limited scenario when you're by yourself. There's strength in numbers. There's strength in community. Find like-minded people. Network. Uh, that's very important. Uh, very important. Learn to work with groups. Uh, you know, sometimes it could be hard, but you're in a very limited scenario. None of us are geniuses in everything. We all have unique points of genius, and we have equal and opposite compensating blind spots or deficits. So you really only get the big picture when you get a group of people together. Uh, and back to the growing the food. I mean, growing the food is the first part. And as you say, that's a, that's a, 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 there's a huge learning curve there. But, but once you grow it, you've also got to learn how to store it and can it. Right. How to can it, uh, you know, how to be able to store it. Um, you know, and, and those things just don't happen overnight. I've been building a root cellar here for uh, five years. I, I should be ready to use it this year. <laughs> but in uh, canning, you know, my parents always canned, and I learned it when I was a kid, and I, I can every year. I, you know, I can applesauce. Uh, uh, I can make my own pickle relish. Um, and, you know, and the average guy out there says, well, I don't have time for that. You know, I work in the office and I do that. Well, one of these days you might find your office job isn't there anymore. No, your job will be surviving. Right. And it's a full-time job. Uh, Philip Hogue is here. No such thing as uh, doomsday. Let's go to the phones and uh, say hi to Fred out in Whitby, Ontario. Hello, Fred. Hi, how are you doing? Well, thank you. Uh, my question is... Uh, does your guests know if they have an EMP device or weapon that they they could use or has been used? My friend has stated they do. Uh, that's basically it. You mean, are you talking about a kind of a localized weapon where you can disable uh, the uh, yeah. a vehicle? Yeah, those, those devices are out there. That's a, a very localized, direct... Uh, like a gun or a cannon? Yeah, I don't know the full capabilities. I, I know uh, a guy had a small one that could fry a TV locally because he brought it into somebody I knew to to repair it. Um, so, And I've heard stories about law enforcement having these capabilities and the fact that they may have even incorporated a disabler chip into uh, the electronics of automobiles so law enforcement can disable them in hot pursuit, you know, some of your newer vehicles. So I, I can't, I don't know. The technology's there. Yes, they can do that. All right, uh, Fred, thank you for the call from uh, Whitby. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about uh, uh, power systems. And uh, uh, once the grid goes down, how are we going to heat, cool our homes, uh, provide power for uh, uh, a radio? Uh, I want to ask you also about... Um, a piece of technology I've learned about fairly recently, and that's the Bloom Box. Whether something like that might be uh, handy to have around. Phil Hogue is my guest as we talk about preparing and surviving a long-term emergency. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. I think a lot of us sort of uh, harbor this uh, fantasy that if I can only get off the grid, if I can only become entirely energy self-sufficient, well, you may be faced with that reality uh, in the event of uh, our North American power grid uh, system going down uh, due to some sort of a large-scale electromagnetic pulse uh, uh, or uh, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, solar activity. That could uh, that could cause uh, interruption in the power supply. Philip Hogue is with us uh, to discuss how to survive a long-term emergency. So, h- how does one set about getting off the grid? I mean, do, do you do it sort of in intermediary steps? Do you, I mean, do you, do you start with geothermal and then uh, and then move on to something else? How do you do it, Philip? Well, um, you know, the, the most common way that people do it these days in rural cabins and whatnot is they usually put in solar panels um, and you know if you've got some constant wind in the air you can put up a small wind turbine that usually is tied into what is called an inverter charger uh, an inverter charger does two things one it uh, controls the charge on a battery bank and then uh, see because what you're producing with your wind machine and with your solar panels is DC current and so it, it controls the charge on the battery bank. And then when you have a need for alternating con- current AC, then it reverses the flow and it in- inverts the DC to AC and provides you with power from your battery bank. So, uh, you know, batteries, we could talk about batteries. Uh, probably the best thing out there, especially for you folks in Canada, is what's called an advanced glass mat battery, an AGM battery. Uh, because it operates down to 20 or 30 below. Uh, it has virtually no self-discharge, and uh, it just has all sorts of really nice virtues to it. Um, that's probably the way to go. There's companies out there that specialize in doing these type of systems. You know, if you've got the money, you can just do that. The problem you get with EMP is your inverter charger is going to be susceptible to EMP. Um, the system that's probably the most bulletproof is going with a pure DC system, uh, where you've got some sort of charge controller, maybe you have a backup one that you keep in a galvanized garbage can, because that functions as what's called a Faraday cage and protect it. It's called redundancy, where your protection from EMP is having backup equipment that's stored in a Faraday cage. Uh, but if you've got a straight DC system, uh, it's pretty much bulletproof to EMP. Um, you know, and you can have DC lights. Uh, it anyhow. What about uh, operating a? Uh, uh, let's say you're out in a rural area and uh, you're going to want to be mobile, uh, have the ability to move around if need be, and let's say in the case of an emergency, uh, what do you uh, what do you recommend? Converting a, a vehicle to biodiesel fuel? Uh, what do you do? Well, you know that's kind of you know uh, biodiesel fuel 
as long as it's available, it's fine. Uh, you know, what I really like is diesel. I mean, uh, I, my, my actual business is I sell large industrial power plants. I do big natural gas recips and diesel engines, heavy fuel oil engines and turbines and whatnot. But uh, for the small-scale guy, you know, who wants to run a cabin, uh, you can buy some Yanmar diesel and Kubota diesel engines generator sets. Um, and those diesel stores very well. You can put uh, octane. You can put diesel uh, stabilizers in it, um, and in the fuel, and you can store it for long periods of time. Gasoline loses its octane. You can. There's some products out there that help it uh, store for a while. Um, the best thing, if you want to use a gasoline generator is go get some aviation gas, which is heavily leaded. That stuff lasts a long time. And then the other issue is if you want to put in a big propane tank, you can buy propane generators. Just be careful that you analyze the consumption rate of propane against your generator set. Because a lot of people, they've got a little 500-gallon tank there. They put in this 10kW propane generator, and they really don't equate how quickly they're going to empty that tank, you know. Um, so I really like diesel. Uh, diesel engines are very durable. Uh, the fuel stores very well. Uh, it's non-explosive. Uh, a lot of good things there. Uh, so that's one option. A lot of these hybrid, off-the-grid systems will incorporate a generator, uh, wind, and solar. So when they don't have solar, they don't have wind, the inverter will actually go over and turn on the generator to charge the system. And, you know, you can... You can operate pretty good, but you have to be aware there's certain things you don't do on these systems. You're not going to have an electric range. Forget it. You're not going to have electric heat. You're not going to have electric hot water heater, and most likely you're not going to run a washing machine or electric dryer on it. You know, Those are items you're going to have to run off a properly sized generator set. Um, Typically, part of being off the grid is learning energy conservation and alternative, slightly modifying your lifestyle. Uh, in other words, if you're going to heat water, heat it with uh, propane. Uh, if you're going to cook, cook with a propane stove or get a, even better, get a wood cook stove. Uh, in my own house here, I've got a wood stove. I, I heat the whole house with a wood stove. Um, so... You know, just start thinking about ways you can do things if the power goes out. And uh, Do you know how to make your own candles? You know, no, but i got a lot of kerosene stored, and I've got a lot of kerosene lamps. Um, you know, I could make candles. I have made them in the past. But, you know, most of the people who make candles, they're going to want to order the wax UPS from some supplier. Well, <laughs> If UPS ain't running, I mean, your only alternative is to be a beekeeper. I used to be a beekeeper, but I don't have any bees right now. Uh, I don't think know, anybody does, unfortunately. And, and your idea about biodiesel, that all depends on getting the waste oil from the local McDonald's, and, you know, that's just not a reality. What do you think of the uh, the bloom box where you, you plug in, uh, well, you could plug in natural gas into your into the uh, into the unit, and then it generates electricity in the, in the home, so... You, uh, we wouldn't need this power grid system. So that's a fuel cell. It is. Yeah. Well, it's 
if you can afford it, it's it's a uh, it's a great idea. It's a it's a very great idea. Um, Presumably, you, know, you could uh, you know you could get entirely off the grid if you were instead of the uh, natural gas, which comes into right. your home, you could use uh, diesel. Well, I don't know if you can run a f- if you want to check on that whether they make fuel cells that run on diesel. I know they run them on natural gas, and you can probably run them on propane right, also. Right, propane. Okay. Uh, but uh, you know, all these things are. Um, real good ideas. In our shelter, we have three diesel generators. We've got 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel, uh, and uh, our cooking is with kerosene stoves, um, and uh, we heat water uh, with power off the uh, generator sets, but we have a cogeneration loop that we built, so instead of uh, cooling our engines with radiator with air from outside, we, we run them through heat exchangers, and that preheats our water into our hot water heaters. Um, and so it gives you a little idea of what you do when you have a little more time and money to prepare. But I think it's very important that people not just take this as a novelty. Over the next two months, we could potentially see life change drastically on the North American continent. Do you have some inf- inside information you, you, you care to share with us, Philip? Well, you know, whether it's the collapse of derivative markets, uh, the evacuation of the Gulf states, uh, you know, there's just a lot of things that are moving to a, toward a point of resolution. Uh, you know, you can, you can see it from a, a lot of different directions. Uh, if our currency collapses, you know, it, it, it's just going to, everything's going to change radically. Tom, Everything is going to change radically. Let's go to uh, Aurora, Ontario, and uh, Tom is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740. Good evening, Tom. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, what I'm kind of uh, wondering is if the uh, EMP takes out all the uh, power lines, then we're, uh, as the phrase goes, SOL. Obviously, you know what I mean, but um, I'm just wondering if there's any way that uh, th- that some kind of technology could be adapted or, or created so that we can, if in the event of an EMP, that we can get the power lines uh, up, uh, back up as quickly as possible. And if, barring that, I mean... Uh, I mean, it, honestly, if there's going to be a, a nuclear war, then I'd rather uh, sit back and watch the world burn and, and try and scramble. But, hey, that's just me. Uh, well, uh, I mean, above and beyond shielding uh, uh, um, your, your cables and your wires, uh, uh, Philip, I mean, th- this is the whole point of this discussion. You're saying, no, let's, let's forego the, the power grid. Let's, let's get off the grid in the event of an EMP attack. Right. Now... <laughs> give you an idea. Years ago, I think it was back in the 70s, uh, a Russian pilot, I think it was from Vladivostok, defected with a, uh, a MiG-21, which at the time was, you know, state-of-the-art fighter plane. And I think he flew to Japan. Uh, and the Japanese were kind enough to let the CIA go in there and inspect that aircraft before they gave it back to the Russians. And when they first looked at that thing, they said, oh, these 
stupid Rushnikis. It's all tube technology. And then after studying it for a little more, a little uh, while longer, they all had the startling, gut-wrenching realization that the Russians built a tube technology for a specific reason, because the tube technology was not susceptible to electromagnetic pulse. So getting back to your grid, yeah, your grid's going to go down if there's an electromagnetic pulse. But getting back to your comment, I, I see this all ta the time. There's these people I talk to about you know, nuclear war survival, and they say, well, I want to be at ground zero, and I want to bend over and kiss my you-know-what goodbye. You know, and, and I just don't buy it. Because let me, one thing, we talked about nuclear war a little bit before, and I'm not saying we're going to have nuclear war tomorrow. It's a possibility. I mean, these idiots are trying to create a war with, with Iran and North Korea. I mean, you need war to distract the public. War creates cohesion. It creates political cohesion. That is its greatest value. Plus, it stimulates the economy. They need war right now like nothing else. They need it. They're going to make it. If they can't stimulate it, they'll create it. But get back. Nuclear war is totally survivable. In my book, I go through that. You know, they talk to if if you have an event which occurs and you're in the fallout pattern. When radioactive fallout, it's gamma, uh, beta, and alpha uh, particles. When they fall on the ground, the the alpha and beta, as long as you don't ingest them or inhale them, you can brush them off your skin. They'll they can give you surface burns on your skin, but they're not going to kill you. All right, gamma radiation very penetrating. You need mass. You need about six feet of earth over your head, or you need a lesser amount of concrete. You need to be in a basement. If you can protect yourself, you can just duck and cover for two weeks, fourteen days. The decay rate of gamma radiation is radical. After fourteen days, you can go outside. It is survivable as long as you're not in the direct effects of the weapon, if you're not in the fireball. And, and in my book, you know, it shows you the, the radius of the fireball and the, the initial pulse of neutron radiation is, is fairly limited. The thing that will kill most people is the fallout pattern, which can go out 250 miles downwind. And all you need is a fallout shelter to protect yourself from that. It's like dust and sand that from this, the rock and steel and concrete that's vaporized by the high temperature and, and goes up in the mushroom cloud and then cools off and starts to particulate down. That's what radioactive fallout is. And it decays radically. And if you can just cover your head for a couple of weeks, then you can come out. All right, so, when we come back, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, medical considerations and uh, I was watching uh, an, an episode of the anti Grode show the other day and someone had a, uh, a surgical uh, a surgeon's kit from uh, it was pre-civil war because the handles were made of wood obviously this was before you know they, they, they thought about sterilization uh, but uh, you know this is a handsome set of tools including you know it was like a, a saw that could cut through a, a femur in probably five seconds flat what, what sort of things should we, uh, we, we be looking at in, in, in order to prepare for an, a medical an emergency? And, and uh, obviously, you know, there's, you, you can take a first aid course, but 
Do we need to learn how to perform surgery on ourselves? Back with my conversation with Philip Hogue, how to survive a long-term disaster when The Conspiracy Show continues. Don't go away. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And your portal to The Conspiracy Show is the website richardserrett.com. Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. And uh, there you'll have uh, all the information on upcoming shows uh, uh, previous shows, there's a past show, audio archive, and uh, a book and DVD club, top secret document page, uh, a page uh, with our regular contributors on there. And uh, you can also follow me on uh, Twitter. Uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist. Nelson Thal will join us at the bottom of the hour with uh, some thoughts on the, uh, the G20 summit. And uh, again, uh, the suggestion that uh, some of these uh, protesters, particularly uh, some of the anarchists that uh, marched under the uh, the banner of the uh, black block, the black block, uh, who were uh, allegedly responsible for the you know the smashing of windows and setting ca- uh, police cars afire, uh, the the suggestion is that some of those may have been in fact agent provocateurs. Well, there is precedence for this. Uh, going back to the, uh, I believe it was the uh, the SPP summit in Quebec a couple of years ago, where a couple of uh, Quebec police officers officers were caught red-handed on video, actually uh, trying to incite uh, rioters uh, or, or protesters into be, into uh, becoming violent. All right, Nelson Thal, bottom of the hour. Right now, Philip Hogue stays with us, uh, talking about surviving a long-term uh, disaster, and um, I should also point out the website for Philip is www.yellowstonepower.com, yellowstonepower.com. A lot of information there about power generators and uh, electrical generators, natural gas, power generation, power supplies, portable generators. Uh, medical considerations, uh, uh, Philip. Uh, I mean, it's, it's always important for, you know, for people to know uh, the basics of, of first aid. Uh, but above and beyond that, what sort of uh, things should we, we, we be stockpiling and what sort of things should we uh, learn uh, to do in terms of uh, a medical emergency? Well, my suggestion is there's a great book out there called Where There Is No Doctor. And it's uh, a book that a guy wrote for um, people that went out to third world countries to work in villages. 
when you have limited resources and uh, it's uh, hands-on how-to. I mean, obviously, it's not going to tell you how to do an appendectomy to take out somebody's appendix. Uh, you're just not going to be able to do it. Um, you know, you can only do what you've got skills to do, and that's why there's great importance. You know, get rid of this idea of being some sort of super MacGyver or whoever these superhero survivalist guys are. You need to work in a group. You need you need to work with people that you you feel good with that you you trust and the more people you have in a group, the broader your skill base is going to be. You know, um, and you're only going to be able to do in medical what you've got training and knowledge and ability to do. And so, yes, you should have some basic first aid, <clears throat> but. Uh, you know, I would I really recommend that book. Where there is no doctor, you can probably find it on Amazon, eBay. You can you may be able to get it in the major bookstores also. Uh, very good book. It gets down to third world level of how to deal with emergencies and crisis and health problems, and uh, yeah, that would be my recommendation. All right. Now, if you're very well prepared. You're you're growing your half acre. You're uh, you're cultivating. You're canning. You've got uh, you're you're off the grid. Uh, when the uh, the crab hits the fan, I mean, there are going to be those who sort of decide they're going to take the easy way out, and rather than store food, they're going to store ammo, and they're going to go marauding. Um, what uh, I mean, what what do you do in in the event that uh, you've got a mob of individuals descending on your uh, on your on your place, uh, they want what you've got. Well, you know, again, I think there's strength in community. Um, you know, and if you work with a group of people, your your scenario is is much better off. Um, the problem with disarming the public is then it, the only the criminals have guns. It's totally insane, and it's it was engineered to make the common people vulnerable. I mean, police do not prevent crimes from happening. They come in after the fact. They clean up the mess. Uh, they try and track down and prosecute the perpetrator, but they don't protect you. They don't protect you. So when they take your guns away and your means of self-defense... They leave you defenseless to criminals because criminals, by their nature, are criminals. They don't obey laws. They're not, they don't, when they say it's illegal to have guns, they don't turn them in. You know, they did it in Australia, and the crime rate and murder rate went through the ceiling. You know, it's just insane. It's insane. Well, the, the, I think the, the statistics to me that are most revealing are those states that have... Uh, carry and conceal laws, uh, violent crime is way, way down. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, criminals aren't stupid. They're not going to get themselves hurt. <laughs> you know, uh, when they're afraid of going, busting into them's house, somebody's house and getting, getting get them shot, they, they think elsewhere and go look for easier prey. You know, so... So, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you otherwise. You know, get in a little group and, and see if you can find some local law enforcement guy that's got guns to be in your group. You know, uh, 
you know, it, it's, uh, I, I guess you do have an option for some sort of hunting weapons up there, don't you? We do. Oh, yes. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people own uh, rifles up here in Canada. Well, that's a good thing to do. Start hunting. Own a rifle. Right. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of non-lethal things you can do, too. Get a big canister of bear spray. Um, if you can't afford bear spray, get Raid. You know, the bug spray? Right. It works really good. <laughs> I would imagine. I would imagine. You mentioned hunting. And uh, uh, what about, um, you know, a knowledge of field dressing an animal? I mean, that's... That's uh, something you got to know what you're doing. Uh, you know. Well, it, it's it's not that hard, and it's a matter of doing it. It's like gardening. You know, you get these theoretical preparedness or survivalist people, and they think they're going to do things out of a book. You need to start now. You know. Uh, you know, I've gutted many, many, many animals, but it, it's kind of daunting the first time you do it. But it's not that difficult. <laughs> I, I, probably something we don't want to talk about over, over the radio. No, not, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Make sure that you dispose of your gut pile properly. No, it's or not how, great. How to, to, how to cut the anus out and, and not contaminate the carcass with urine from the bladder. You know, I mean, there's... There's <laughs> a reason we don't do this show over the dinner hour. Exactly. But as you say, this is, these are all important considerations, and it's all... You know, these are all things that uh, uh, at once upon a time people grew up, they just, they did it, they learned it by doing, and it's it's really fallen from our consciousness, which brings us to the whole sort of psychological consideration. And that is, you know, we are, the, the, as I say, there was a time when our our, um, our existence was, uh, we spent our days uh, surviving, uh, gathering and hunting and planting and, and, uh, and harvesting, uh, canning, Stockpiling, etc., uh, and 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 now um, we um, we've sort of consigned that uh, off to, to to other people, and we, we don't know any of these things. But dealing with just the the psychological implications of uh, of survival. I mean, how do we how do we reverse? Uh, let's let's face it, we're a pretty soft. Uh, we're a pretty soft society. Uh, how do we toughen ourselves up to, to cope with uh, this type of situation? Well, I think attitude is part of it. Um, you have to have the attitude that where there's a will, there's a way. Um, that's one aspect of it. And the other thing is, if you get yourself in a life-threatening situation, you've got to be careful not to focus on what's wrong so much as focusing on where you want to go, Did focusing on the desired outcome as opposed to the problem. In other words, you've, you've got to have a goal. You've got to be heading somewhere. Uh, you know, you've you got to be looking to the end of the tunnel. If you get too preoccupied looking at the problem itself, uh, and what you dislike about the problem, you're going to attract more of it. Fair enough, fair enough. No such thing as uh, Doomsday. Now, Philip, you mentioned it's out of print, but there's still some copies uh, uh, kicking around on uh, on Amazon. Uh, you also mentioned uh, a valuable book, and uh, I think it was entitled Where There Are No Doctors. Right, excellent book. Yeah. What about uh, salvaging? Um, you know, let's say... Uh, uh, 
in the event of uh, some cataclysmic event and uh, you're able to, you know, move from a, a sort of a vacated home to vacated home looking for supplies to salvage what's usable, what sort of things would you recommend people try and salvage that you might not uh, become, might, might not be obvious at first? I'm thinking things like, you know, magnets from speakers, from stereo systems and these sorts of things. Well, I wouldn't worry about the stereo systems so much as I'd worry about boots, warm clothing, wool clothing, uh, you know, rain gear, uh, tents, uh, things that, uh, pots that are good for cooking over open fires, uh, you know, uh, getting down to basics again. You know, when I, I look at things and I, I stockpile preparedness goods, you know, I'm looking at warm boots, warm sleeping bags, wool pants, wool sweaters, uh, cold weather mittens. Um, that's the kind of things that I look at. Well, that's at. pretty basic, yeah. Extra can openers. Right. and uh, Batteries. You know, another thing that's very good is there's a lot of survival companies that sell things like wind-up radios, uh, wind-up flashlights. Uh, the LED technology on flashlights is great. You can buy solar chargers for really good rechargeable batteries, these new lithium batteries. I think it's a lithium. Anyhow, there's a new, new battery that I'm using the old cadmium batteries didn't work very well at all, you know, the rechargeables, but there's a new generation of rechargeable batteries that work very well. So these are the things to think about, you know. Uh, lighting is a very important issue, too, because there's nothing more depressing uh, than to be have the power go out and have no lights, you know. And then the second thing, the idea of a wind-up radio that even makes it worse, not only are you in the dark, but you don't know what's going on. The unknown is very uh, oppressive to human psychology because then your imagination is, is, is rambling on a million possibilities, you know what I mean? So it's nice to have some sort of wind-up radio that you know is going to work and to have flashlight. If you can stay out of the dark and you can hear emergency broad broadcasts of what's going on, and you've got something to eat and stay warm, hey, you're in pretty good shape. Well, Philip, listen, uh, good luck to you in the, uh, the upcoming uh, election for uh, sheriff. What county is it in, up in Montana? Park County. I'm just north of Yellowstone Park. The Yellowstone River runs through the valley I live in. That's where a river runs through it. Came from, remember the old Redford movie? Yes, they, yes. They filmed it here. <laughs> a river runs through it. I live in the Paradise Valley. Uh, well, I think you're in the right state. I mean, I, when I think of Montana, I think of self-reliance. Well, there's a lot of self-reliance here. Um, you know, you got a lot of self-reliance up in Canada up there, too. You know, you got a beautiful country. you got a lot of natural resources. you got game. Uh, you know, you got a lot going up there. Uh, but it's a good time to think about local sustainability, and self-reliance. Absolutely. Philip, uh, thanks for your time tonight. Good talking to you. Okay. Have a good day. You too. Okay. All right, Philip Hogue. No such thing as doomsday. Well, as I said, the G20 
was here and now it's gone, leaving a $1.3 billion price tag in its wake. What about those anarchists? Is it possible that some of them might have in fact been agent provocateurs? Well, there are those allegations swirling around. We've certainly seen this before, but did it happen again? Nelson Thal, media scientist, joins us here on The Conspiracy Show after this timeout. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Next week on the program, Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief, editor of World Affairs Brief, will uh, be with us to take a look backstage in the Global Theater. Uh, he's the, uh, the editor of a very uh, interesting uh, newsletter, which provides some uh, insight into what's really going on uh, and the uh, sort of the secret agendas uh, behind the actions of world leaders. And uh, we're just uh, looking forward here to a, a phone call from our media scientist friend Nelson Thal, who's uh, going to weigh in on the uh, the whole issue of uh, the allegations that some of the uh, the protesters that were involved in the more violent clashes with uh, security here at the G20 may have been agent provocateurs. And again, if that sounds unrealistic, uh, wildly speculative, there is a, certainly a degree of speculation there, but there is precedent. In fact, uh, uh, Ontario Federation of Labour leader Sid Ryan uh, got himself into some hot water with the, um, the, uh, the head of the police uh, services union here in Toronto when he made that suggestion that uh, police might utilize agent provocateurs to justify, uh, to, cr- to stir up trouble so that they could then justify the, uh, the $1.3 billion. I, I think it was around $900 million that was actually spent on the security. Uh, and uh, he pointed to um, an incident a couple of years ago in Quebec, and I believe it was the Security and Prosperity Partnership uh, Summit uh, at that time in Montebello, if it wasn't that, it might have been the, um, the Summit of the Americas, which I think was in Quebec City. And uh, a couple of Quebec police tried to infiltrate. Well, they, they basically dressed up as, uh, as protesters and were trying to incite other protesters to commit acts of violence. And suddenly these, uh, these agent provocateurs who had uh, covered their faces were surrounded by other legitimate protesters and were saying, who are you? What do you want? Why are you here? And uh, they quickly disappeared behind police lines. This was all caught on a video. It was widely distributed on YouTube. And uh, then they showed the police actually going through the motions of arresting these, uh, these protesters, quote, end quote. And that's when we realized that they were... They were police. They were wearing the same issued boots, police-issued boots. Uh, and it was later admitted that they were, in fact, police. Did that happen again this time in Toronto? I don't know. I don't know. Again, there is precedence. It's something you can't just dismiss out of hand. I mean, that may sound like a very cynical, uh, a cynical thing to say, but there you have it. Precedence. All right. Nelson Thal, our media scientist uh, friend, has joined us, and he can be heard uh, Thursday nights online at... Uh, uh, BlueMenSteel.com. Yes, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, yeah. BlueMenSteel.com. Nelson, how are you? Good. How are you, Richard? I'm all right. Did you uh, sort of avoid the whole uh, 
uh, red zone, blue zone uh, uh, while the G20 was in town, or did you get down right down into the, the heart of the matter? I got out of the sewer just before they locked it down, I should tell my audience, because I told them I was going to be in the sewers, and through the sewers I could get through the whole place without any credentials. I did, and then I just left. All right. So, Nelson, what about these allegations that uh, the uh, some of the, uh, okay. the the Black Bloc members may have been agent provocateurs? Look, Richard, let's just understand the history here of the police interaction with the public. Okay? Let's remember the history here. In 1968 Democratic Convention, uh, the Chicago Seven were charged with creating the riot. It later turned out that Sherman Skolnick in courtroom, before courtroom in the Supreme Court, showed that these guys had been paid through the Baldwin Foundation, and he was, they basically on, were on CIA credit cards. There you're was saying, a false flag. They, you're saying that the, that has the been... The people creating the violent riots were the ruling elite themselves. You're saying that's been documented and proved. And it came out in court. It has been... And t- Hayden and Abby Ginsburg, et cetera, et cetera, known as the Chicago Seven. We won't name them all. Jane Fonda's husband. Big, no surprise there, right, Richard? Right, right. CIA all over it. So that's what's going on, and I don't think that uh, this is any different. The, the law of averages is it's the same thing. Well, what about, I mean, uh, what about uh, some more tangible evidence than that? Do we have, for example, uh, anyone investigating, you know, some of the names? Uh, do we know well, any of the names of these the money black blocks? Back, you'll find out these guys were paid by the big banks, ultimately. Don't kid yourself. But, uh, yeah, but has anyone actually done that legwork? Has anyone done that legwork? Nelson, has anyone done that legwork, though? Has anyone, you know, rather than, uh, you say, if you don't follow the money, well, has anyone followed the money? I mean, do we have any tangible evidence at this point? I mean, yes, we have precedents. That's important. Uh, they've done it before, but did they do it this time? For example, in Quebec, we had that, that, the video footage. We had the, uh, the police officers that were the agent provocateurs. They, we saw that they were wearing the same boots. So that's, that was sort of the giveaway. And, of course, then they, on video we see them disappearing behind police lines. Well, if you're a protester, you're not going to die for cover behind police lines. So is there any, any tangible evidence like that this time around? Well, you know, Superior Court Justice Bonnie Kroll stayed very, very um, serious corruption charges against um, uh, a police uh, detective in Toronto and the thing was, the delays breached the right for a fair trial. And so when the, cor- the corruption's there, Supreme Court judges are after them. The, the, the police, the Metro Police, is very corrupt. I mean, just ask Bonnie Kroll. She's a Superior Court judge. They've been after the, all the corruption on the police force. So it's, it's, I mean, when you've got a corrupt police force, it's not difficult to put two and two together and know the Chicago 7 and all that's been going on. It's really, it just stands out like a sore thumb. And if, yeah, there, were, if there were agent provocateurs used, would it be in order to, uh, again, uh, provide, uh, provide you know, a rationale for the, for the expenditure on security, the $900 million? Uh, is that, is that it, the idea? It's rationale for more globalization. It's new global government. It's world government. 
they, by creating the violence, it, it helps them to, it's the terror, it's the terror, the show of terror that helps them uh, take over more control of the nation state apparatus. Look at what's happening. Our police are now working on assignments with the world police force and the world police force, government police were in town with high level credentials. And, and now all of a sudden it's all being restructured into a, into a much larger system. Nelson Thal is with us and uh, you can hear him Thursday night, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, bloomandsteel.com. Uh, one thing I must say I did uh, find interesting, and, and, uh, and again, I have no evidence here. I'm not a, uh, uh, you know, an expert in, uh, in uh, detonation, etc. But I just found it rather odd that those uh, police uh, cruisers were so, it seemed to be so easily set ablaze. I, I wouldn't imagine it's that easy to set a car on fire. And then, of course, then you had the ammunition in the police cruiser. That was, you know, going off in all in all, in all directions. Um, well, obviously, it was a setup for sure. Why would you, as a police chief, leave a car there in that zone? I mean, obviously. But the thing, I think, what it does, Richard, is it distracts us from the important thing going on, and that is that. Um, you know, it, it begs the question, why don't we bring the mass media inside the leaders' arena? The leaders of the world should make presentations to the audience on their visions of the nation state's role in world government. And that's the thing. The people should have been let in on what was going on behind the behind the curtain. Oh, I agree. Stage in the global theater and hear what their plans are. I agree. And have them go. But they were in camera. And so by being in camera and out of the picture, it caused a lot of stress in the, within, the, within the body politic, and that created a lot of the violence and stirred up a lot of the violence because they weren't allowed in. Well, if it had been on TV, which it should have been, I think that would have dissipated. That's another thing. Well, the, um, the, the suggestion that, uh, you know, these, uh, particularly the G8, you know, a, a get together uh, and, uh, you know, find ways to further integrate uh, economies and so forth. One of the, um, the problems I have uh, with the idea that, that, that these guys are, you know, trying to bring about one world government is they just can't seem to agree on very much most of the time. So how could they ever possibly, uh, uh, you know, agree on, uh, on, on one world government, the rules and so forth? It's going to be pretty difficult, and and Richard, you know what I what the great answer to that question is. It's like the clay trying to merge and, and meld and control the iron, isn't it? Right, you're citing from the, the from the book of Daniel now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if good men are punished on the earth, how much more the sinful and the evil? I mean, you're a spiritual show here. Like, did you feel the evil spirits in town? They were heavy. The white angels, right? Well, maybe I'm not Demons that... come as an angel of light. I'm so not that spiritually adept spirit, yet. On the spiritual radar, they were just, it was just tremendous. Which also stirs up the crowds. But I mean, in terms of uh, of uh, one world government or the process of globalization, is it actually happening uh, at, at at the G eight level, or is it above uh, above that? Yeah, level? it's happening at all levels. And I think the thing is, though, it's happening at all levels. Uh, but the thing is, it's easy. You know, we could easily turn it off. Uh, just take down the satellites. I mean, it's not like we can't turn it off. If we wanted to easily stop globalization, just turn off the satellites, and that's what's doing it. 
you know, and so once you start putting satellites on and turn the planet into a box, inside a box, and a theater that to be programmed, it's going to cause a lot of frustrations. Nelson Thal, media scientist with us with a few thoughts on, uh, on the G20. Can you stay with us, Nelson? Sure, I'd love to. All right, back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Media scientist Nelson Thal is uh, with us. And Nelson, we can uh, continue to chat about uh, uh, G20 and uh, allegations that uh, some of the Violent protesters were, in fact, agent provocateurs. Yeah. Uh, if that were the case, I, I, I would, th- I would think it would be more logical to assume that they, rather than being, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 employees of uh, of, the, of the local, uh, you know, police services, that it would be higher up, maybe you know, uh, RCMP or CSIS, uh, would it not? Wouldn't it be orchestrated well, from a higher level than the local, the local Toronto police uh, services? Yeah, they, they'd just be, uh, it, they were just following orders. They're a police force. They're military. They're really military. The interesting question that I'd like to know is, how come we didn't have the military guarding the G20? I mean, this was all set up to create this terrorist attack, this violent, like a, it was an, a terrorist attack on a psychological terrorist attack. They purposely let the cars burn. Obviously, they put them out there and they said, we're going to torch them. So they did it themselves. But the police, the average cop on the beat doesn't know what's going on, right? But the badges upon the badges upon the badges giving orders, well, put a car there. It's soaked with gasoline. Now, how guys takes two guys to get the Metro Police to do that? Just two guys. That's all. Well, it's an interesting theory. I mean, You know, I, I... I flew for the OPP as a pilot. Yes. From 19 full time for five years. I flew for OPP. I flew uh, Drug Squad. I followed Mob, the Mob. Uh, I flew Traffic and I flew Search and Rescue. And then I flew for the RCMP and Metro Undercover on, on all sorts of different missions. So I've seen the hierarchy and how it operates. And when you have a military operation and the police are really military, they follow orders. They don't don't know the big plan. They don't know the big picture. One guy does, maybe two at the most. And that's it. Nelson, uh, on uh, Bloom and Steel, have you been, or uh, Shock Talk, have you been talking uh, a a lot about the uh, the BP uh, oil spill? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about it. I mean, and of course, we follow the money to start with, like Sherman Skolnick and Garrison and everybody always told us, follow the money. It's interesting that uh, there were a lot of short, just like there was short selling of American Airlines by uh, Lord Black, right? Right. Before 9-11. So there was, Transoceana stock was shorted. Well, one and of the, a lot of money was made. One of the interesting theories that's going around Golden now. Facts. One of the interesting things that's going around now about the the whole BP uh, oil spill, and I, yeah. uh, actually one of my my students on my talk radio course gets quite upset whenever you mention the the, the BP oil spill. She says this is not a, a mere spill. This is a you know this is a gusher. Why do we continue to call it a spill? Which is a fair comment. However, one of the things that's going around now is this uh, a theory that the the BP 
uh, spill is a false spill. It's in fact, it's an illusion uh, that um, they deliberately uh, 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 drilled into the side of a uh, an underground volc uh, an under ocean or underwater volcano, uh, and the, the stuff that's uh, that's that's actually uh, spilling out into the water is is uh, is um, more of a tar which exists on the bottom of the uh, the, the Gulf. In any event, uh, they intentionally drilled into an asphalt an asphalt volcano. Uh, to create this illusion that there's ec- this uh, ecological disaster. Have you heard anything about this? Yes, I, I have been heard, heard about it, and I think it's important, Richard, to, when you think about that report, it's important also to remember that um, uh, we had Pam Schufert uh, out at the uh, caldera in Yellowstone because it was there was a lot of evidence, and we did discover that um, that uh, um, tow missiles and et cetera were anti-aircraft missiles were brought in uh, on CNR railway in in shipments of raw lumber, and um, there there were all sorts of. Uh, plans to try and blow the caldera in Yellowstone, and that's an, an underground volcano, right? Right. It's an area of lava under, underground. As a matter of fact, it's heating up. It's been heating up more and more over the last five years, and they've banned the public from certain parts because steam is rising. And so um, if, they, if, they, if they couldn't do it at Yellowstone, maybe they decided to do it somewhere else. Well, the, the, the idea here is uh, that um, they... Um they're uh, denying the people uh, access to the uh, the beaches. They've got these no-fly zones uh, uh, in order to make ensure that this truth doesn't come out. So the beaches have these private security contractors, ensuring no one's yeah. able to gain access to the oil on the shore. Yeah. Uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico is apparently a no-fly zone. Uh, the, the Gulf states are being locked down by the military. And even yeah. that the uh, the videos that were supposedly... Seeing uh, you know this oil from uh, the the BP Deep Horizon, uh, the rumor is that these aren't actually videos from uh, the Beep, the the Deep Horizon. They're from surrounding wells that that were already leaking by design. Mm-hmm. Well, there definitely is a poisonous gas in the air that's being measured, and um, I think those reports are pretty accurate from what I've been able to check out. And so, regardless of the oil on the beach, there's gas in the air. And it seems also that there's something taking away and depleting the oxygen supply within the Gulf. And so we could have a lot of dead fishes unless they can. We need some scuba equipment for the fishes, Richard. <laughs> what, what, what is your, uh, your, your, your theory? They're running out of oxygen. <laughs> I don't know why we're laughing, but it's the yeah. truth. But well, what, what can you do in the face of such travesty sometimes is but, but, but laugh but it, because it's, uh, you know, otherwise you cry, right? But what, what, what's your theory as to why the, the, this, uh, this happened? Was it... Uh, was it um, uh, sort of the, the, this backstage war spilling out. Uh, the, this is sabotage, corporate sabotage, or the uh, the Habsburgs. Really bad karma. Really bad karma. That you created on your own. Explain. Really bad karma. Explain. You start to play around with technology that just is so overpowering you can't control it. With the breakdown, you know, it's just the, the technology these guys have available to do this sort of drilling and have this, and you knew that this could be the result and could be the effect, 
it, it, to put that technology in the hands of corporate citizens who don't give a hoot about the public is is gross negligence by the government. It sounds like you're saying, though, that this was, in fact, uh, then, then what it appears to be, and that was a, a, an accident. Yes, there was gross negligence involved, but it sounds like you're saying there isn't some sort of underlying conspiracy that it well, was William deliberate. Well, Cohen or... said that uh, in 98 that they have eco-terrorist weapons, and some terrorists have access to weapons that create volcanoes and earthquakes. Harp technology, scalar cannons, uh, all these Tesla-powered weaponry, and when you put those things in the hands of these people, it's uh, and you know Secretary of Defense Cohen told the truth, and of course Colonel Bearden's got his sight, but the t- power of this technology is very very powerful, and when you put it in the hands of these madmen, they do all sorts of cr- ridiculous things with it. And certainly 9-11 was very much involved, you know, with high technology and, and major military operation and very, very sophisticated, advanced physical principle weaponry. Nelson Thal, media scientist yeah. and a uh, host of, uh, or co-host of uh, Shock Talk with uh, Bloom and Steel Thursday nights. And uh, w- what's coming up on uh, this uh, Thursday show, Nelson? You know, I think we'll talk a little bit about this, what's happened here, and the, learn, what we can learn from it. And I think the first thing we learn from it is, don't hold in-camera sessions. Let the people in on the, you know, with, with the breakdown of the technology by not letting it in, the audience was forced to get into the act. That's what McLuhan would say. You're talking now again about the G20, yeah. The thing yeah, that with the breakdown in the technology, the audience had to get into the act. And the second thing is make no media zones. Within six blocks of the outer zone, there'll be no TV media allowed. If you want to go down and riot and throw stones, no TV's going to cover it and let the police do what they may. We trust them. That's an interesting idea. Here's the question. Then the the protester, then keep, they should have just said to the media, here's it. Well, I thought they were going to do it. They said they designated Queen's Park. They should have said to the media, this is where the demonstrations, protests are. This is where you are. You're not going to go within six blocks of the downtown because then the protesters won't show up. What are they going to show up for if there's no TV? If you're a, a Quebecois and you hear no TV camera, oh, wait, the police may smack me on the head and nobody's going to see it. Right, right. Let me ask you no why. Nobody's going to see it. And they shouldn't have covered the, allowed the media to cover the detention center. Let the police do their business. Don't let the protesters distract the, media, the audience of the body politic. Well, that's exactly what happens. The media focuses on the, the clashes, and we never really discuss what's going on behind closed doors. That's the great deception in the brainwashing. Why don't they, speaking as a media scientist, Nelson, yeah. what is the, the purpose of flying all of these world leaders into one location, spending all of this money for security and building fake lakes and so forth? When they, In the age of video conferencing, this could be done online at virtually no cost. Yeah, but they like to witness all the signatures when, they're, when they sign off on these things because they don't know who the real persons arrived because it's a secret war of doubles. Who knows, like in 2004, we know in the debate, you could see the battery pack on his back. Bush, Bush used his double. This is nothing new. This is, you know, wait, 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 2004 presidential debate. Yeah, presidential debates. It was remember? a double? And during the debates, if you recall, um, he was being given, fed the information through a chip inside him, the double was. And uh, the discussion got 
slowed down, and the guy in this talking to his ear speeded up. And if you watch it, it's on YouTube. He goes, hold on. And he shouted, hold on. And everybody looked at him in the room, and it, it, was, it was on national TV. He went, hold on. Oh, in other words, Bush was mean, being... Hold on. He was talking. All of a sudden, he came out, and he, was, it, he got caught talking to the, the theater. In other words, he was getting information put into his earpiece. Yeah, and you could see the battery pack on his back between his shoulders. It was obvious. It's on the, you can see it on the Internet. Let's go to uh, Dave and Hamilton. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Dave. Hi, guys. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Yeah, hey, not too bad. I just want to do uh, maybe a uh, comment on uh, what happened at the uh, G20 there, and I was hoping I might be able to uh, connect with uh, Nelson there off the air to compare stories. Sure. I was uh, held in custody. I've talked to Richard about this before, but I was held in custody for uh, eight years on trumped-up charges of supposedly uttering a death threat under conditions that would make what happened to me or Aurora look like a, a children's fairy tale. Uh, what happened there with the protesters that got dragged out of, you know, a peaceful protest, some of them innocent bystanders that got dragged away uh, and then put in deplorable conditions, colds, uh, cells, uh, no food or water and things like that. I mean, I went through that, like I say, for eight years, worse than Arar, and, you know, they used things like uh, light, uh, temperature, uh, sound to, you know, literally drive you nuts. So, you know, th this doesn't surprise me uh, what I saw, t you know, over the weekend here. But uh, I'd love to get in touch with Nelson there and maybe uh, compare some stories here. All right, Nelson, uh, do, you, um, do you want to leave him a, an, an email address? Or uh, I guess he could just uh, he could uh, call in to, uh, to Shock Talk at some point Thursday. Yeah, just go to the site, bloomandsteel.com. All the information's there, bloomandsteel.com. Bloom and Steel, and it's uh, Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, and Steel, S-T-E-E-L-E. -E -E and what, is there a toll-free number there for the show or something? I'm sorry? Is there a toll-free number there for you to call in for the show? I don't think it's a call-in show, but you can. There's his contact it's information is there. Show, you, can, you can call me. The number's I, there. Is there any chance I can talk to you off the air here uh, when you get off? I well, give, Richard, your, uh, give me yeah, a uh, phone number uh, off there. Ask him to go on hold, and yeah, we'll, we'll hang take, on until later. Okay, well, what we'll, we'll do is we'll take, we can't really tie up the lines to do, for, so you have oh, a conversation. Okay. We'll, we'll take your email address uh, off yeah, the air, Dave, and I can pass address. it on to Nelson. Thank you for the call, uh, Dave, in, uh, yep. in Hamilton. All right, we'll take a quick time out to uh, uh, come back, a few programming notes, and I'll, I'll let you go uh, here, Nelson. Thank you, as always, for your, uh, your insights on uh, the G20 and the BP oil spill. Again, it's... Uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel Thursday nights, and the website is bloomandsteel.com. Always a pleasure, Neil, uh, Nelson, and uh, you and I are going to connect for dinner Thursday night. Sounds great. Looking forward to seeing you. And you're doing just a great job, Richard. The show is great. Thanks, Nelson. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. You know, the program director here at uh, AM740, uh, Gene Stevens, who's a, a, a great uh, supporter of The Conspiracy Show and a fan, uh, he's uh, really intrigued by a lot of the things that we talk about on the show. He sent me an email recently, and uh, he sent me a list. I really appreciated this. Uh, he sent me a list of uh, some upcoming anniversaries sort of related to the things that we talk about on the show. And July, my word, July should be designated sort of conspiracy month. 
uh, July seventh or J- July second, we have the uh, the anniversary of the uh, alleged UFO crash at Roswell. That's July second. The third, Jim Morrison uh, of the Doors supposedly dies in Paris, or did he? I once talked to a uh, a rancher out in uh, Oregon who claims that his neighbor is in fact Jim Morrison. Uh, July the fifth, Ian Fleming author of uh, 007, his first graduate of spy school in Canada, 1942. July 16th, of course, the uh, the anniversary of uh, the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Or did they land on the moon? Also on July 16th, John F. Kennedy Jr. dies in a plane crash under rather interesting, mysterious circumstances. One weather report says the weather was clear, and then later it was changed and said it was very foggy that day. Others say he was a poor pilot, and uh, others maintain not true. He was a very accomplished uh, pilot. July 18th, a huge fire destroys much of ancient Rome as Nero fiddles. Did Christians do it, or did Nero do it? Was that the first sort of Reichstag fire? July 18th, Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Kopechny Uh, Of course, that tragic incident at Chappaquiddick. Uh, July 20th, the most famous assassination plot against Hitler fails at Wolf's Lair in 1944. July 23rd, Archduke Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, assassinated by a lone gunman, supposedly sparking World War I. And July 31st, Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa uh, disappears back in 1975. Wow, July a great month for conspiracy fans, and we'll be talking about uh, a number of these things as the month unfolds. My uh, special thanks uh, to the producer of tonight's program, Frank DeCurtis. Good job, Frank. Landing uh, Phil Hogue for the uh, the program. And uh, thanks, as always, to Dan Ellison for technical production. Uh, back next week, Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. He'll be part and parcel of the program, but there'll be much more, I can rest assured. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I say in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.